This is your host, Dale Josie, and welcome to the second season, episode two of my podcast series, Aging with Grace 55 Plus, designed for anyone who wants to enjoy the journey of a lifetime after age 55. This podcast is made possible by Kentucky AARP and DPL Financial Partners. This variety edutainment series, edutainment series, get it? Provides useful tips, not only for taking care of self, family, and friends, but also how to enjoy life more abundantly than many people even thought possible for ages 65, 75, and beyond. You'll hear from some of our guests doing what many listeners perhaps only dream about or maybe even never thought possible. So enjoy their stories on this unique lifestyle podcast and be prepared to share your own along with hearing useful tips and vital information for everyone aging with grace. And by the way, if you have a story idea that would appeal to our age group, then please email me, Dale, that's me, T-A-L-E, at awg55.com. Or drop a note in snail mail addressed to me, care of Aging with Grace 55 Plus, P.O. Box 99112, Louisville, Kentucky 40269. In this edition, our first guest, Mike Thompson, shares his ongoing yearly experiences of hiking the entire 2,000-mile Appalachian Trail. Jeannie Freibert shares some of her background and training for her creative artwork. And Dr. William T. Bill, Bill Baker, discusses life after 40 years as an OBGYN. Hope you enjoy listening to my guests as much as I did interviewing each of them on this edition of Aging with Grace 55+. Plus made possible by Kentucky AARP and DPL Financial Partners. Each episode of Aging with Grace opens with reflections, and this episode, episode two of season two, is certainly no different. And we're going to focus uh, our thoughts today on mindfulness. There are two books I have been re- reading and preparing my reflections, my comments for today. So I'm going to re- read some points from or have a compilation of thoughts from. One is uh, Mindfulness by Lisa Brooks and Marie Jones. And the other book is How to Be Mindful by Anna Barnes. And we'll open with Anna Barnes kind of sharing some thoughts from her book, how to be mindful, and then we'll conclude with some thoughts of mindfulness in the book by Lisa Brooks and Marie D. Jones. And so my reflections on mindfulness are as follows. Mindfulness is about focusing on the magic of the present moment. Rather than fretting about the past or worrying about the future, the aim is to experience life as it unfolds moment by moment. This simple practice according to Anna Barnes, is immensely powerful and life-changing. Because you see, as we rush through our lives, either gainfully employed or retired, 
Mindfulness encourages us to stop constantly striving for something new or better and to embrace acceptance and gratitude. Rather than filling every waking moment of our lives with something, either a something or some place or whatever, being mindful allows us to tap into the joy and wonder in our current lives. You know, in, in, in its simplest sense, mindfulness is paying attention to thoughts, feelings, and surroundings as they occur. In other words, mindfulness is being present in the present. And in their book, Mindfulness, Lisa Brooks and Marie Jones, they're saying that this should be easy. And I agree, right? After all, the only place we can actually live is in the present. The past is gone, folks, never to return. The future is unknown and uncertain. What's more, oftentimes, we don't even have control over the situations that cause us anxiety, those things that cause us to wring our hands. But yet, this doesn't stop us from spending our days wishing, I don't know, that Maybe we could build a time machine to to fix past mistakes or see what the future holds. No, 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 no. We, we simply allow thoughts of the past and worry about the future to consume our lives, to take us captive. But, folks, why do we do this? Why are we being held hostage? Especially since we don't live in the past. We don't live in the future. All of this regret all of this worry, all of this endless speculation is simply unproductive and causes us that undue dirty word that shortens lives and impacts the body negatively. That word, stress. There it is. So to avoid undue stress, join me in making a conscious effort. Join your host in focusing on the present which is one certain way to alleviate some of this unnecessary stress. And let's be mindful. Use it as a tool to help us live more fulfilled and less anxious lives. Listeners to Aging with Grace will know that uh, each episode majority of episodes include a series of bad jokes and also a fun factoid. And if you have a bad joke that's funny, please send it to me, your host, Dale, D-A-L-E, at A-W-G 55.com. And so here's a sample, or example rather, of a bad joke uh, that's kind of funny, right? Um, like, for example, what do you give to a sick lemon? What do you give a sick lemon? Lemonade. <laughs> All right. Okay. Here's what is funnier, I think. Um, before the invention of the wheel, did you know that everything was a drag? Everything was a drag before the invention of the, of the wheel. Get it? Okay. Moving on. Moving on. Uh, now we're going to have a fun factoid. Um, here's a fun factoid. 
that's related to King Louis XIV of France, who reigned from 1643 to 1715. I just can't get over the what he gave to a sick lemon lemonade. That was funny. Anyway, um, so an average dinner, did you know, and you didn't know this, right? An average dinner eaten by King Louis XIV of France included, are you ready? Four plates of soup, a whole pheasant, a whole partridge, two slices of ham, a salad, mutton with garlic, pastry, fruit, and hard-boiled eggs. Can you imagine consuming that much? Well, King Louis XIV did. At the size of his death, it was discovered that the king's stomach was twice the size of a normal stomach. So the question is, I guess, was this a hereditary defect, meaning he had a large the larger than normal stomach, or was it the sheer consumption of this amount of food which made his stomach twice the size of a normal stomach? Who knows, right? I certainly don't. But here's something I do know is that you're going to enjoy the following interview with Mike Thompson. As part of Aging with Grace, I like to introduce and bring forward and find people who are doing some really unique things. Remember, my target of my audience is uh, my demographic is age 50 plus. <clears throat> and as I've always said, this is not a time as we age, it's not a time of diminishment, but it's a time of uh, not only application of what we've learned from some of our best teachers, which are experienced, but it's also time for some people uh, who are either nearing retirement or actually in retirement uh, have actually still are having some amazing adventures. And one such person, uh, Mike Thompson, who you're going to meet in a minute, I think I could characterize him uh, perhaps as an adventurer. We'll see if he agrees with that or not. But one of the things I like about Mike is that he has hiked the Appalachian Trail. And for those of us who are uh, familiar with the Appalachian Trail, it is one of the most iconic scenic hiking trails in the world. The northern trailhead begins in Maine while the southern trailhead is at Springer Mountain in Georgia. The Appalachian Trail, more than, uh, looks like about 2,190 miles, covers 14 states from Maine to Georgia. And there's someone who has actually been walking that, which I'm very impressed with. And now I want to bring Mike Thompson. Mike, welcome to Aging with Grace. Hey, thank you, Dale. Uh, uh, glad you're having me today and, and look forward to our conversation. Well, very good, Mike. Uh, I appreciate good. that. I was going to say, Mike, uh, I, 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 turn, I called you an adventurer. Um, is that fair to say? And is this uh, something that you would write right as part of your bucket list? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I started thinking, I started thinking about uh, when I turned 65 about what I wanted to do in retirement. I started thinking a little bit late. And uh, uh, I always like to uh, hike and be outdoors. And uh, so I'd never been on the Appalachian Trail, and so I started researching it. And, um, and I thought, hmm, that would be a good goal. It's 2,200 miles, and um, I'm on a 10-year plan. Mm-hmm. And I'll take a week in the fall and the spring and and uh, walk the trail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, that's I, I just 
I wasn't, uh, it was something I just had uh, started thinking about when I turned 65. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that's interesting. Um, you know, I talk to people who have uh, turned age 65 and they walk through the, you know, the, through the parks and they walk through the parklands or whatever. So, Mike, my point is there's other places you can walk. <laughs> why, why the Appalachian Trail <laughs> at 2,200 miles? <laughs> it, was, it was a challenge. Um, I, you know, it, it's not just flat. It's up and down. And mm -hmm. I wanted something uh, that was a challenge. And, and mm -hmm. it has proven to be a challenge. Yeah. Uh, I think I, yeah. I think I read somewhere uh, the going the whole trail um, is like going up Mount Everest and down six times. Wow. Go, yeah. Yeah. It's a huge, yeah. Huge elevation um, uh, difference. So, well, well so you know, that, that's challenging. We know to compare it to uh, Mount Everest, uh, I read where it, it reported it would take 5 million footsteps to hike the entire trail. And an annual uh, estimated, it looks like about 2 to 3 million visitors a year hike a portion of the, of the Appalachian Trail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's quite a few people on the trail and uh, from all different uh, walks of life. Um, uh, not only U.S., but a lot of people from Europe uh, I've met along the way and uh, didn't expect that. Mm -hmm. And actually, I didn't expect the age of the people mm -hmm. that I've met on the trail. A lot of older people are walking the trail. Seriously? When so you say I'm, older, what, uh, what about what age, Mike? <laughs> uh, well, anywhere from... Uh, you know, my age, 67, uh, I've seen some that are 75. Wow. So, um, and, and, uh, even older, you know, they, there was one guy that I met, uh, the last trip and, uh, he had his daughter drop him off and I didn't ask his age, but I think he was probably in his eighties mm -hmm. and he was just going to walk, um, j just as much as he could and then call his daughter to come get him. Mm -hmm. so, so you don't have to walk the whole trail. Mm -hmm. You can walk some of it. And I think that's kind of uh, what you have done. You've already walked it uh, several uh, segments. What have you walked to date so far? I've uh, started in 2018 in the fall at Amicalola Falls in Georgia. And that's the approach trail to Springer Mountain. And I've walked about 400, 425 miles, I guess 20% of it so far. I'm almost to Virginia. And next week, I'm planning to go for my fall trip um, this year and uh, go from Hampton, Tennessee to Damascus, Virginia. Mm -hmm. So when you start at Hampton, Tennessee, and you end off in Damascus, Virginia, is there some? Is there a rendezvous point? Does someone come and get you, or or someone drop you off and then pick you up in a week? How does that work logistically? Yeah, I usually go to my starting point and <clears throat> leave the car there, and then go as far as I can for the week. And then uh, there's always 
somebody, there's runners that you can call, there's hostels along the way that provide uh, shuttle service to wherever you want to go. And so I do that, but I've never had a problem, you know, uh, finding a trip back to my car. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, now this is not an easy walk. I mean, I really want to stress that, Um, you know, it's, I mean, there's certainly some parts of it we'll talk about, which are a little bit easier. Like, for example, I understand Shenandoah National Park uh, is considered to be the easiest hiking along the trail. But before we get to that point, you are truly in, in the wilderness um, and getting, you, you could get a, a walker, not you, of course, Mike, but a walker could get lost, <laughs> could fall ill. Um, and, you know, there are wild animals out there, right? I mean, this is, this is truly, the Appalachian Trail is truly <laughs> wilderness, right? This is not a walk through Disney. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I had a bear experience uh, in the Smokies. Um, one night, I uh, it was, I think, the second trip. I was putting my food in my backpack and putting the backpack up in the tree, and I didn't put it far enough in the tree, up in the tree. And uh, the next morning, I didn't hear the bear, but the next morning, my backpack was on the ground and all my food was taken by the bear and... <laughs> Uh, the bear put a big hole in my backpack. <laughs> wow! Wow! Are you serious? So, 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 you know, I have this cartoon image in my mind of a of a ninja bear, <laughs> you know, tiptoeing into your camp, up the tree, gets your food, tiptoes out, and you didn't hear anything. <laughs> I didn't hear anything. I slept through it. Totally. And uh, so I thought, oh, this is the end of my trip. Uh, I don't have any food. And so I just picked all my stuff up, packed the tent and, you know, huge hole in my backpack and uh, no food. So I went down to uh, uh, down the mountain and there was some people down there mm-hmm. and they gave me something to eat for breakfast. Mm-hmm. And they said uh, about ten miles down the road is a hostel, and they have where you can replenish. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. Um, and they gave me some energy bars and stuff to get me to uh, to that hostel. Mm-hmm. And I, but I really thought at first I thought that's the end of my trip. But I said no, I'm not going to let that mm-hmm. stop me. And uh, that's part of the challenge. Mm-hmm. Well, things happen along the way, and the trail has taught me a lot just about life. Yeah. That it, yeah. Sometimes, it, sometimes it's hard, and you just get through it. Yeah. You know, when you have sex, you get through it. So, well, if you can bear with so me it, on it, the, it, if you can bear with me on this story, if you can bear with me on this story. <laughs> Sorry, I, that was hokey. I couldn't resist it, Mike. But uh, so, but in terms of the bear, in terms of the bear taking your food, triggers the question: um, If you're gone for a week, you have to take all of your food. All uh, as or I gather, uh, you have to take as much staples as you can and supplement yourself along the trail. Uh, but you still have to pretty much be self-sufficient, correct? Food-wise. 
Well, that's what I thought, and I took a lot more than I really needed. Mm -hmm. And uh, each time I've taken less and less and less because there are hostels along the way that you can get food. Um, And so I'm taking less and less. And, you know, on the trail for me, I don't get as hungry as I thought I would. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I try to limit it now to about 30 pounds mm-hmm. uh, for the backpack. Wow. So 30 pounds. Uh, and how many, when, when you go out uh, next week, how many miles are you going to cover with 30 pounds? Well, you have plus 30 pounds because you also have your tent. You have, what else is in your backpack, Mike? Uh, let's see. Uh, tent, um, water is the heaviest. Thing. And, you know, that's something you just have to plan for. Normally, I like to get water at the top of the mountain so I don't have to carry it up. But most of the time, the water is at uh, in the low elevation. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, you know, it just adds more weight as you're going up. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I have a guide. Um, I don't use my my phone uh i could get an app that shows the elevation and where all the water is and everything but i just use uh paper uh i've got a a paper guide and it shows where all the water is and everything so Mm -hmm. so i've never lacked for any water so Mm -hmm. For our guests we're discussing uh hiking the appalachian trail with mike thompson who so far, as part of his trail hiking days, he's hiked over 400, looks like about 425 miles, um, and he's getting ready to head out again. Um, Mike, as you head out, you mentioned that you don't necessarily use an app. So, And I'd ask you off mic, are you stopping and taking pictures? Are you talking with people? And you pretty much indicated this is a solitary retreat from all the trappings of civilization. Yeah, yeah. I I take some pictures, but I usually keep my phone off. And, uh, you know, it's neat just meeting people along the trail. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of people on the trail at certain points. Uh, you know, you have a lot of day hikers. Mm-hmm. You run into them. Then also uh, hikers coming. I, I go northbound, but mm-hmm. there's some hikers southbound that are through hikers mm-hmm. and those are interesting people that take you know four or five months to to walk the trail and so met a lot of great people uh that are doing that of all ages so do you always go northbound and if so why uh, yeah yeah um i i georgia was closer to us uh and so i started uh from the southern point and headed north but in the spring i'm going to go to new hampshire uh there were people on the trail that said uh mike you need to do new hampshire soon uh because new hampshire is the most difficult uh everybody that i've talked to says new hampshire is the most difficult because of the rocks and the wind and i think the elevation uh, uh difference also 
Mm -hmm. Rocks and the wind. And then what kind of uh, elevation are we talking about from the beginning to the summit? Or are you summiting? Is that fair? Or is it just a gradual increase in elevation? Uh, Most of the time, it's not gradual. (laughs) They, uh, it is uh, pretty much straight up. uh, And, you know, it it varies, but uh, you can go from 1600 feet up to 5,500 or, um, let's say, I guess, uh, uh, the highest point was about 6,000 feet, mm-hmm. but it varied you know, three or 4,000 feet elevation climb, uh, is normal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you might do two or three of those during the, the high, the, the day, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I usually start around eight o'clock in the morning and finish up around five. Mm -hmm. So you might do two or three of those Mm -hmm. in one day. I understand uh, from researching uh, the the story uh, to discuss with you that the Appalachian Trail is one of the most biodiverse uh, units in the entire national park system. And that it's, um, it it, it has just an amazing diversity of, uh, or, or let me start over. Um, it's almost like a barometer, if you will, for air, water, and biological diversity, not only the Appalachian Mountains, but also the eastern United States. Uh, has there been anything on that trail which you saw as part of the biodiversity? You said, wow, it just stopped you in your tracks. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, the highlands, um, I forget if it's Tennessee or North Carolina, the trail goes between the two states. Uh, but it's like you're in Scotland. It's, it's bald mountains, and you're walking up this bald mountain, and uh, it's just awe-inspiring. For my listeners who have been hearing an enjoyable conversation with Mike Thompson, we can label him an adventurer who has hiked uh, the Appalachian Trail. Uh, so far, he's covered about 425 miles, and he has many miles to go on a trail that's uh, over 2,000 miles long. Mike, thanks so much for your time. And, buddy, have a good, safe trip. I look forward to speaking with you again soon. All right. Thanks, Dale. Enjoyed it. My next guest for Aging with Grace is a uh, uh, someone who has new beginnings. And, guys, you'll remember uh, some of the previous episodes. We talk about new beginnings as part of the aging process. We have... Uh, Dr. Dale Tarver, for example, who had a new beginning in Augusta, Georgia, after Hurricane Katrina destroyed her medical practice in New Orleans. And there there, there have been others. But I think at the end of the day, it's always good to hear firsthand stories of people who are doing new things after so many years of, of being in a career or transitioning into a new stage of their life. And as part of this episode or this segment of New Beginnings, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jeannie Freibert, who is an emerging artist, maybe not so emerging because she actually has training. I'm going to stop talking about her bio and just say, good morning, Jeannie. Welcome to Aging with Grace. How are you? Uh, Good morning, Dale. It's wonderful to be here. Well, good. I'm so glad you are. So when we talk about transitions, and uh, you had shared with me, I think, that you had a... um, that you have, actually have a degree in painting, and that's kind of where you are right now, but that's not where you began. Well, I do have a Bachelor of Fine Arts, and um, yeah, my career has uh, 
gone through four or five transformations as works for me because I do like change and some parts were expected, some weren't, but it's all been very gratifying. I still have my hands in a couple different activities as we speak. Jeannie, you have um, had some lot of changes in your career. There's been a lot of different uh, ups and downs. And maybe uh, based on what the um, some statistics I read from the society, maybe for uh, HR management, human resource management, you're about right in terms of four to five changes in, in your career path. So can you kind of give us maybe an up, uh, maybe a high and a low, and what you took away from both of those? Sure. Um, a very distinct high point in my memory was in December of 2017, when I was at the Museum of Modern Art, San Francisco, with a very old friend of mine. And it dawned on me that art to be successful, it does not have to be what's traditionally thought of, you know, as per se, good. Um, And by that, I mean, I have some artist friends who are just amazing painters and they paint in very traditional ways and they are very successful. They sell a lot, Um, but that's not the way I paint. And I realized that maybe that's a good thing. Um, Oddly, all of my painting instructors were very hands-off, very laissez-faire and So thus, I think I was able to develop more of an individual style, nothing else, a naivete. Um, Whether good or bad, I've somewhat protected that over the years, kind of valued it, Mm -hmm. despite the counterintuitiveness of all that. Mm -hmm. And it was after that that I opened my studio and started painting on a regular basis. And that's morphed. into more mixed media work, but I'm thinking about going back to straight oil painting now. Mm -hmm. So that would be the high point that led me to delve into being a professional artist more. And a low point, I will go back between my first and second career. My first career, I was a commercial photographer. And my second career was as an art teacher. And I will just go back even further to say, I just always knew at some point I would be a teacher. It was just, I knew it was in my nature is what we played as kids, played school. (laughs) And uh, my husband was in the army and we moved around a lot. And I had a wonderful opportunity to get a master's of arts in teaching to build on my BFA. And at that point also, uh, I just, We were living in Oregon and I had some circumstantial, unsuccessful photo shoots that really devastated me. Mm. And our next stop was Oklahoma. And and I would say that that spurred me further to go ahead and go for the master's and become a teacher. Enjoying a conversation with uh, Jeannie Freibert, who's a professional painter, we're talking about some of the influences on her art. Uh, One of pieces of which you're going to be able to see on my website, awg55.com, which is the ear, which is the beginning of a series. But before we get to that point, Jeannie, a moment ago, you touched on uh, oil as a a preferred medium. Uh, Is there any reason why you chose oil versus uh, watercolor or acrylics or anything else? Well, um, I was trained in oils 
And so I tried acrylics for a while just because of, I thought it would be uh, easier to clean up and less, uh, the odor would be less, but in actuality, it's not. Oils are just as easy to clean up and we actually like the odors. Um, a recurring theme, physical theme in my work is texture. And so I was pushing and pushing and pushing texture with oil and with various um, additives to make it thicker and such. And I got to a point where I was enjoying texture for texture shape. I was at some point using it as part of the subject matter, but I was heavily influenced by a friend and mentor artist who was using wax in his work. Wax. So, yes. Hot mm. wax encaustic. Mm -hmm. If you're using it in a pure form. And I've done that basically painting with colored wax, but I use it now in conjunction with painting and photographs mm -hmm. mostly. And that's what the earpieces are. Mm -hmm. It is a, a photograph, uh, blown up, well, manipulated, heavily manipulated. Ear, your piece ear certainly uh, arrested my attention here. I mean, I'd like for our uh, listeners to Aging with Grace be able to not only see that piece, but also get more information, which will also be posted on my website. But Jeannie, can you also give that to us right now? Yes. My website name is JeannieFreibertStudio.com. And in lieu of spelling it out, I will ask you to post it on your site as you already said you would. Because I said or it done, I'll definitely do that, Jeannie Freiber. It's been delightful to speaking with you. Uh, keep up the good creative work. I look forward to uh, seeing more of your pieces in the future. And I certainly encourage our listeners to also visit your site. Thank you for your time, Jeannie. Thank you, Dale. Okay, guys, I uh, promised you another uh, couple of bad jokes and a fun factoid. And, you know, I have to deliver on that, right? I mean, when you say this, you have to deliver. So uh, first, here's a couple of bad jokes for you, right? Um, the first one is, <laughs> I like this one. What did the duck say when she bought a tube of lipstick? <laughs> what did the duck say when she bought a tube of lipstick? Put it on my bill. <laughs> You get it? A duck bill. Put it on my... <laughs> okay. Um, here's another one. Here's another one. Um, the other day, I was talking with someone who tried to organize a professional hide-and-seek tournament, but it was a complete failure. So I said, why was it a complete failure trying to organize a professional hide-and-seek tournament? And he said, good players. Good players are hard to find. <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. That's not funny. I think they're both hilarious. And so with, I wish I had a, I got to get a drum set, right? Get a little, a little rim shot there. Um, and so anyway, here come the fun factoids. Uh, did you know? I don't know why I'm saying, did you know? Because you didn't know this, but maybe someone did. If you did, drop me a line. Anywho, did you know that priests in ancient Egyptian temples plucked every hair from their bodies, including their eyebrows and eyelashes. Ouch. Oh, Lord. Can you imagine? Water is already coming to my eyes. Thinking about priests in ancient Egypt, Egyptian, ancient Egyptian temples plucking every hair from their bodies, 
including eyebrows and eyelashes. And then the final fun factoid for today, um, the Declaration of Independence. You know, there's a name across the bottom, right? John Hancock, center of the document, very prominent, very strong. And you can see that, right? Matter of fact, some people even have said in the past, like if you're signing something, have you ever heard anybody say, you know, put your John Hancock here? No, I haven't heard that. Well, I have. I have heard that. Thank you very much. And so (laughs) anyway, John Hancock signed his name in extra large letters on the Declaration of Independence. And do you know why he did this? He did it not out of self-esteemment or self-aggrandizement, but he signed his name so large and so prominent that King George III, notoriously poor-sighted, could read it without the aid of spectacles. And there you go. Did you know? Here's a footnote in history, a powerful name, at the bottom of an amazing document from someone who made an impact. And now we're going to hear from Dr. Bill Baker, who has also made an impact in his chosen profession of OBGYN, retiring from it after 40 years of practice. As we go to our next guest on this episode of um, Aging with Grace, um, and especially as a male too, and I'm sure other men probably struggle with me and considering retirement because you see the work life of successful men is typically all about channeling our energy and attention into producing measurable results. And also, of course, we hope by doing that, we generate plenty of income. As men, we push to dominate. We push to be the best in our chosen field or our career path. In researching this section of uh, of my of this uh, of this episode of Aging with Grace, I read an interesting article by a uh, Michael F. K. who wrote in Psychology Today that men begin their careers with an ascent that's typically typically linear. We learn as we climb, and before we reach the summit, according to Michael K., we've achieved mastery. And so, as his article continues. Usually, and and outside of this article, we also understand this too, that our work and our careers kind of define who we are, right? Um, And then as we reach our adult lives, we're so focused on our work that we can't imagine making a 180-degree turn to a life that's full of passions outside of our career or close relationships, So I like to periodically, as part of this segment, and we also have another part of Aging with Grace, a standing segment called Starting Over. But in this one today, I want to introduce you to an excellent gentleman, a friend of mine, I'm proud to say, uh, who has retired. But as we talk about his retirement, we're also going to talk a little bit at a later date about his medical practice. And the gentleman that you're about to meet, his name is uh, Dr. William T. Baker. I was going to say his name was, but he's still here, right, Bill? So <laughs> I was yeah. going to say, you're still here. So, so we'll say Dr. William T. Baker, he was a uh, obstetrician gynecologist uh, practicing with a local hospital, and he received his medical degree from Tufts University School of Medicine and recently retired after practicing medicine for more than 20 years. So before I go any further, Dr. Bill, you were here, you are here. And so welcome to Aging with Grace. How are you, my friend? Thank you, Dale. I'm I'm just fine and honored to participate in uh, this adventure of yours. 
Well, I appreciate you being willing to do that. Um, and, you know, as a physician, and you were in a uh, challenging area, which is obstetrics and gynecology, which specializes in women's reproductive tract, pregnancy, and childbirth, um, that was a challenging career for you. And the insurance rates indicate that as well, correct? Yes. Uh, paying my malpractice premium every year, well, let's just say I could have bought a really nice little car instead every year <laughs> if I wanted to. But the challenges of the actual practice was uh, um, it, it, I, I want to say it was it was fun. That, that's probably not a proper word. It was um, it it was very rewarding in many, many ways. And uh, I guess I want to de-emphasize the financial aspects of it. Um, you know, you, you meet people, husbands and wives, at, at challenging points in their lives, at usually exciting points in their lives. Uh, and you, you kind of become a, a member of the family or maybe better stated, you know, primary member of the team. And, mm -hmm. then, and that's very rewarding. Mm -hmm. So why did you, I'm just curious, and we'll get into the retirement decision shortly, but let's start in the beginning. Why obstetrics and gynecology? Well, we, we may circle back around to this, but I grew up on a farm and my dad was a physician. And during the hot summer months or the cold, wet, sloppy months when I was out on the farm trudging around messing with cows and horses and, and chiggers and, and, and thorny bushes, my dad was somewhere else and in air conditioning. And uh, I, you know, as I graduated from high school and went into college and began looking at career possibilities, the only two I knew anything about were what my dad did and what farming was all about. And I thought, <laughs> uh, I think, I think I'll try what my dad did. And <laughs> I always enjoyed math and science. And so that, that, you know, paved the way. And, and, um, and there it was, I, I was mm -hmm. lucky and fortunate to get accepted to a nice medical school and then went on from there to a wonderful residency program in Dallas. Mm -hmm. for four years and, mm -hmm. and then private practice back here in Louisville. So you, you, you downplay the, the, uh, the lucrative part, which I certainly understand, but you built a viable practice. It was a very significant practice and you were well-regarded in the medical community. That's not easy. Well, um, I mean, thank you for the, the compliment. Um, it, the first three years were pretty barren. I didn't join a group. I went out on my own, which is a little odd. It was a little odd then, and it's more odd now to try to do something like that. But it was also, as I say, very rewarding. So as you're building your practice, um, and at, at the onset when I introduced this segment, would you agree with the, the statement uh, that Michael Kay published in Psychology Today, that men are pretty much identified by their careers. And part two of that, 
we spend uh, the first part of our adult lives focused on our work. So we can't imagine making a 180-degree turn someday in retirement. Um, I, I, yes, I agree with those statements. And yet, um, fairly early on, I mean, well, I had, I've always had lots of interests in other things. Okay. Uh, now, there's no question that during the first 10, 20, uh, and even up into the, you know, 30 years, um, that a lot of those things took a back seat. Um, but I, I credit my wife and my kids with drawing me back to a, a, a center away from all work and no play. Um, and, and as I say, I had lots of hobbies, uh, that included them. Mm -hmm. And, um, so work was never just everything. Mm -hmm. So it was more, so you had a, in the beginning before it became Vogue, we can, I think we can agree with you had a healthy work-life balance. Thanks to Lana, your wife, and thanks to your son, Logan. Yes. Uh, now, now, you know, there were too many times where they took a back seat. You know, if somebody goes into labor um, and you're out to dinner with them, it's like, well, hey, I'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs> I got to go. <laughs> Y'all have a nice time. And uh, away, away I went. All right. <laughs> Which I'm, sure, I'm sure your patients appreciate that too. They don't want to hear, uh, let me finish my minestrone and I'll be right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They don't want to hear, they don't want to hear that. No, they, they would like for you to be there. Uh, and, and I of course wanted to be there also. So, but it, it, it was a happy time. Uh, and, and it still is. I have mm -hmm. wonderful memories of all the, all that we did. And, uh, it was good. Well, let me ask you this. Um, so at one point, we touched a minute ago on that 180-degree turn. Uh, you've got your white coat. You're, doing your, you're making your rounds. You're taking care of patients. And then one day, uh, Dr. Bill says, you know what? Um, I think I'm going to have to do something different. Uh, when, did, when did that start? When did that process begin? And what was the beginning of thinking, I'm going to have to step away? Well, throughout my career, um, retirement was never a goal, and yet it was something that I knew was going to happen someday and, and ought to happen someday. I mean, one of the, the saddest things in, in maybe any profession is to see some guy who hangs around too long Mm -hmm. thinking he's still got the chops when, uh, when he does not. And, and I, I thank goodness it didn't happen very often, but I witnessed on a couple of occasions where a committee of doctors had to go sit somebody down and say, you know what? Um, we need you to step aside or, or, you know, well, anyway, be monitored or proctored and, and it was embarrassing, if if nothing else. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've been very blessed and fortunate from from a 
material point of view. And early in my practice, my wife and I decided we're going to, we're going to create a nest egg. We're going to set a decent percentage of the income aside for retirement. Mm -hmm. Um, And there, there were many other factors, most of them good. uh, And some of them not so good that, that came together about, four or five years ago where I said, you know, I think this has been a good run. Uh, I have other interests uh, because our nest egg had grown. uh, My wife and I could afford to retire. Um, And uh, it, it, it was not a difficult transition. The, the, the decision, I, I suppose you could say the decision was made a long time ago. The question was about timing mm-hmm. and how to do it gracefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, a number of factors happened, which we can get into if you want. But but uh, the transition was actually pretty easy, pretty smooth. I hope you have enjoyed my interview with Dr. Bill Baker as much as I enjoyed speaking with him in this episode. Unfortunately, we are running out of time, so be sure to listen to the conclusion of my interview in episode three next month. I'd like to also thank Mike Thompson, who we heard from on the Appalachian Trail, and artist Jeannie Freibert. You can find more information about Jeannie Freibert. That's J-E-A-N-N-E. F-R-I-E-B-E-R-T, GenieFreibertStudio.com. If you missed past episodes of Aging with Grace, again, this is our second season. So be sure to listen to Season 1, Episodes 1 through 12 on my website, awg55.com. And folks, you had all the options today, and I want to thank you for taking time to listen to my podcast sponsored by Kentucky AARP and DPL Financial Partners. DPL, which is the leading turnkey platform for commission-free annuity and insurance solutions. Remember, aging is a lifelong process. And if you choose to see new possibilities, you'll find them. Life is a gift. So join me in wishing everyone we meet to be present in it. Get it? (laughs) Present life is a gift. Yeah, I think you got it. Aging is not a time of diminishment or being relegated to the sidelines of life, but it's a time of application of lessons taught by some of our best teachers, including experience. Hey, I'd love to hear from you. So please visit my website, awg55.com. Or send me an email at a, at, this is Dale, at awg55.com. You can also use snail mail if you prefer that. That's P.O. Box 99112, Louisville, Kentucky, 40269. And now, the last thought of the day from James Clear, author of the book Atomic Habits. James writes, Good habits make time your ally. Bad habits make time your enemy. So, until next time, this has been your host, Dale Josie, 
of Aging with Grace 55 plus.